Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to take them out and uh, turn with me to uh, Genesis uh, chapter 45. We'll be there uh, most of the morning. And while you're doing that, you can multitask and get out your core guide that we publish on a weekly basis. It has devotionals on the inside to help keep you rooted in the Word uh, throughout the course of the week, but there's a nice blank spot uh, on the front to take uh, any notes that you might want to jot down uh, during the message. And I know you just sat down, but uh, would you stand with me to honor the authority of the Word? I want to read this text to you. Uh, we're in a series going through um, the life of a person in the Bible we know as Joseph. And he's had uh, kind of an up and down go of life. Early on, his brothers, uh, they were upset with him because he was daddy's favorite. And they, instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery, which for all intents and purposes in, in their minds, that was the same thing as uh, killing him off. Well, he got carted off to Egypt, and uh, as we have documented over the last few weeks, he rose to a prominent position as number two person in all of Egypt, and he helped Pharaoh and all of those people prepare for a famine that was to come upon the land. They were going to have seven years of uh, plentiful, bountiful harvest, and uh, Joseph helped them plan through that and, and store enough uh, that they would be able to survive the following seven years that were going to be severe famine. And so we talked last week that the famine hit just like Joseph had predicted, and uh, he threw open the storehouses of Egypt and was able to sell uh, grain to sustain the lives of the Egyptians, but also that the whole world came to... Uh, the whole known world at the time came to Joseph because they were starving as well. And uh, along with some of those people from the world who were coming to Egypt, lo and behold, it was Joseph's brothers. And he had a face-to-face -face confrontation with them um, in the story that we talked about last week in chapters 42, 43, uh, and 44. And... <clears throat> In those chapters, I think he was wrestling with, do I forgive these boys or not? Do uh, I think that I have come to the place in my heart where I have forgiven them and we can move on, but I'm not maybe quite sure yet. And so he wanted to test them a little bit, and he put a series of challenges in front of them. Uh, and at the end of chapter 44, it was Brother Judah uh, the one who originally had the idea to sell Joseph into slavery, uh, who stepped forward and, and said, hey, uh, we, we know that Benjamin is guilty of this test here, but please don't keep him as your slave. Take me instead. And in that moment, Joseph, I think, realized that, that they had contrition in their hearts and uh, had repented of what they had done to him long ago. And we get to our text today in chapter 45, verse 1. It says, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. That's kind of significant because all along this whole story, the, his brothers, when they were interacting with him, were interacting through an interpreter. Uh, they spoke a different language than the people of Egypt, and, and Joseph would have spoken to them in Egyptian through an, an interpreter, and so there was kind of this, this distance between them. They didn't know that uh, he could overhear and, and understand everything that they were saying in his presence and, until this moment where he released all of the Egyptian people and the interpreters who may have been in the room, and now it's just he and them. And I imagine they're scratching their heads like, what? How are we going to... Talk to this guy. And he wept. He wept. So loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, and this would be in their own native language now, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? 
But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Shock and awe. Oh my goodness, what is going on? This is the last person that they would have expected at this moment. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come, come close to me. Draw near. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph. Remember the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me on ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here but God. He made me father to Pharaoh Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near to me. You, your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all that you have. I will provide for you because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me here in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked openly with him. And we'll leave off there. This is the word of the Lord. Let me say thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, this morning, I, I really want to preach to you a prosperity gospel. Have you heard that term before? And maybe a prosperity gospel not in the way that you have come to understand it in our American culture. There is a gospel out there that will tell you that if you do your faith just right, that you will be healthy and wealthy. Um, that's not the same gospel that I read, but I definitely think that there is a prosperity gospel that runs through the pages of Scripture. We might not be able to enter into certain places of the Joseph narrative. This is a guy who was in prison, and, I mean, he had this phenomenal rise from being in prison up to being the number two person in Egypt. One of the wealthiest uh, countries in all of the world, and so being the number two person, uh, he, he went from nothing to everything. Now, I would suggest, I know it's true for me, that I'm not likely to have that same kind of meteoric rise from you know, where I am now to you being, you know, number two and, you know, wealth beyond imagination. So it's, it's a little hard for me to approach this text and, and really get into it and begin to understand the story if I think that if I do my faith and I'm, I'm, I honor God in just the right way that that I'm going to have that same kind of rise. I don't, I don't think that that's an entry point for us uh, in, into this particular story. Uh, <clears throat> we might read this part of the story. You know, things are going well for, for Joseph. We might say, well, of course they're going well. He's got everything. Of course, Joseph should forgive his brothers for what they did because look at how his life has turned out. It reminds me of a conversation that's recorded in the book of Job between the devil and God himself. And the devil comes to God and God says to, to, 
to the devil, he says, hey, how about my guy Job? It's one righteous dude, isn't he? And the devil's accusation to God was, well, of course he's righteous. Of course he's faithful. Look at how blessed he is. Look at everything that he has. What, why would he not be righteous and faithful? We look at Joseph and you're like, ah, if he, he should forgive his brothers because he's in this position of uh, power and privilege at this particular point in the story. I have a hard time stepping in and, and getting much of a message when I think about it through that particular lens. I think the access point for, for myself and probably for most all of us is through the, the pain and the brokenness and the injustice that Joseph has worked his way through in his, in his life. He's faced a lot of hardship, and I think for us, that's probably an easier entry point into the story so that we can understand maybe what there is to learn here. We, we enter through hospital rooms. We enter through the unemployment lines. We enter through the divorce court. We enter through the family therapist offices. Those are all points of entry into the story where we feel the twinges of brokenness and fractured relationships in our own life, and we, sometimes we wonder why is, you know, we enter the story because there's lots of bad things that happen to good people. Joseph, we see as a person uh, who there was bad stuff that happened to him. And I can... I can enter into his story at that point. When we get to this place in the text, yes, for an individual person, Joseph has, it's turned out okay for him. But the story isn't about one man. The story is about a family who is destined to become the people of God. There's the promise of God way back to uh, Abraham. That's the story that we're in the middle of when we get to this point in the text. And so we need to approach it with that bigger picture in mind, that this isn't just about Joseph, this is about the people of God. And at this particular point in the text, that family relationship is broken. It's broken. We might wonder, well, what if Joseph was still in prison? Would he still be as forgiving as he is if uh, he was, if, if, would he be as forgiving if he was in the prison as he is now that he's in, in the palace? The happy ending to this story isn't that he occupies this high place. Um, in chapters 42 through 44, when his brothers come to test him out, he's confronted with this idea of restoration, of forgiveness. Earlier in the story, when he named his own children, he named his firstborn Manasseh, which means that he, uh, some some translations will record that as he was able to forget about his past, to forget about his family of origin. I think it's a way of saying that he had dealt with the things that had happened to him, and now he is at a point where he can move beyond. He sees that there is a life beyond that pain and that brokenness. Well, that's one thing to say. It's the one thing to name your kid that and say, yes, that's where I am. But at this point, he's had no confrontation. He's had no test of that. His brothers show up looking for help. Now is where the rubber meets the road, to use a cliche. Now is when all of those nice words that Joseph would have said, yes, I've, I've moved beyond. And uh, you could say I've... 
I've forgiven, I've let go of the past, I'm, I'm ready to live my life. Now, now that his brothers, the ones who put him in this place, now that they're right in front of him, now is the test. So during those chapters, I think that we see uh, a story that plays out in front of us of a guy who is wrestling with, did I really forgive them? Did I really move beyond all of that past hurt and brokenness? And am I ready to take steps into the future? Is there any part of me that sees a restoration and a reconciliation with my family of origin? They're standing in front of me. So you read the story, and he sets up this series of tests. And uh, he finds out more information that his dad's still alive. You know, Benjamin, his younger brother, uh, wasn't with him the first time, and so he orchestrates a scenario to get Benjamin back. And then he sets Benjamin up. He puts his own silver cup in their pack of grain and sends him off and then, you know, sends the police out after him, and they pull him over, and they, they go through, and they find, oh, no. It appears like Benjamin has stolen property from Joseph. The penalty was that Benjamin then would live a life uh, as a slave in Joseph's own house. And the test for them was, what he was trying to see is, has, have my brothers reconciled? Have my brothers changed from who they once were? They were glad and willing to get rid of me. My younger brother, by the same mom, is now in a position where the brothers could say, yeah, too bad for you, we're saving ourselves and we're going home. But Judah is the one who stands up and says, no, keep me instead of Benjamin. And and Joseph sees this change of heart in his brothers and uh, is ready to, to move forward in this process of, of reconciliation. Lewis Smedes, he says, uh, he's an author, a theologian, he says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. And I think that we see in this story uh, evidence that what he says is, is true. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. I think that's how forgiveness works. Our past hurt and brokenness, words are one thing, but when we're confronted with <clears throat> actually practicing what we've said, when we get to that moment of forgiveness, I think we often realize that, wow, this maybe has been holding me prisoner a whole lot more than I thought. And to truly forgive someone is to set yourself free from hanging on to that. And so the prosperity gospel that I want you to hear this morning or to consider this morning is that the true prosperity that God gave Joseph in this story was forgiveness and reconciliation. That's the true prosperity in this text. Well, to get to reconciliation, there are three things that, that need to happen that show up in this story. The first, the, the first thing that needs to happen is you need to see the bigger picture. Uh, in our house, um, we have... Well, this, I think, you know, maybe someday long from now, I hope, at my funeral and my kids are pontificating on wise things that Dad once said, I think it will come up that uh, <clears throat> I would often ask the question, is that a good idea or a bad idea? You know, they'll say, hey, I'm going to do this, or what do you, you know, and I'm like, well, is that a good idea or is that a bad idea? A way of helping kids think through uh, their decisions, their choices, and uh, in an effort to help them see a bigger picture. Uh, another way that you get the bigger picture, or one another saying in our household, uh, we were 
Uh, we were on a speedboat with some friends quite a few years ago, and <clears throat> um, uh, our friend's husband was driving the boat, and she was sitting in the back. She wasn't quite ready for him to gun the motor, and he did, and it was kind of choppy, and boom, 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 and she fell off her seat and rolled around the back of the boat, and, and we're like... <laughs> Uh-oh, this is going to be a, a marriage test moment right here. Well, she gets up, and she's just laughing. And it was awesome. And she's like, you know, we, have, we came to this agreement in our household a while ago for situations just like this. She says, our motto is, if it's going to be funny later, it might as well be funny now. <laughs> you know, think about it. Think about that. It takes the pressure of being angry, you know, off the table in the moment. If it's going to be funny later, we might as well laugh about it right now. It's an effort to see the bigger picture of how the story is going to be played out and told, you know, in months and, and years from now. So the first step towards reconciliation is this ability to see a, a, a bigger picture. Uh, <clears throat> We need to see, uh, in terms of our Christian faith, that uh, remembering that God desires and works towards being reconciled with humanity is His intent, is His purpose. He has gone ahead of us. He is calling us to Him. He wants to have the relationship that we broke off. He wants to restore that relationship, and He goes to great lengths to do so. And so to see that God wants to be reconciled with us helps us see the larger picture here. And so we get to this point in, in our text, uh, this moment of, of revelation came um, for Joseph, and he, he, he sent all of the Egyptians out of the room so that he could be alone with his family, and he says, I am Joseph. I am your brother. How's dad? It's the first thing, the first statement that, that he says to them. And, and we're told they're, they're speechless. They're dumbfounded. They're terrified. They are shocked. They don't know how to process in this moment. They are, they are so startled that they are speechless. They don't, they don't say anything. It's the last person that they would anticipate or expect to meet in this particular moment. And Joseph uses this opportunity to quickly reassure them. He says, I'm not interested in exacting revenge on you. Yes, I, I am the one that you sold into slavery. But I see God's greater work in the whole story. Through my years of imprisonment, through my years knowing that the presence of God was with me through all of that has helped me to see that God can sometimes use the bad things or the broken places of our lives for our good. And that he can, he can weave, he can put back the pieces that we break apart into something that is beautiful, even more beautiful than the original. You know, things look a whole lot different on the other side of grace. And Joseph, in all of his years, all of the trouble that he has seen and been through and experienced, he's starting to see that God was ahead working for the preservation of life through all of it. Now, God didn't orchestrate his brothers to sin against him. God didn't make that happen, but God can use the actions of sinful people for his glory and our good. And, and so we get to this moment where he can confront his brothers here, and, and he's able to extend them the grace. It doesn't change that, yes, what they did to him was, was rotten. But Joseph could see the bigger picture that there was salvation for an entire family line. 
and how the circumstances ended up playing out. Joseph was in a position where he could offer life and a new beginning to his brothers. So the first thing that we need in reconciliation is this uh, you know, vision, this understanding of the bigger picture, going back to God's story, seeing where he is active and alive and working to put broken things back together. That's, that's the first thing. The second thing, second step in reconciliation is repentance. Oh, no. That's not a, that's not a popular word. I mean, repentance is to feel regret, to feel contrition, to turn from sin in our lives and go a different direction. Repentance is, is actually making a change. You know, sometimes we're really quick to apologize, to say I'm sorry. But in the end of that, we don't really have a change of heart. We just want to make the situation better. We want to smooth over, oh, yeah, I hurt their feelings, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apologize and say I'm sorry. But rep true repentance is different than just saying I'm sorry. True repentance would mean that when I say I'm sorry, it's rocked me to my core and I've had a change of heart, so I'm going to do everything in my power not to do that again. I'm going to change directions and, and go a different way. Second step is repentance. It's not a popular concept these days because out in the world, we're taught that, hey, whatever we think, whatever we do, if it's good for us, it's right. And so it's really hard to repent from a position where we go around always thinking that we're in the position of being right. There's no recognition then of wrong. We're, we're very quick in our society to point out the faults and flaws and sin in other people's lives and say, oh, they need to repent. They need to, they need to change. They need to be more like how I think. And so repentance for us is a hard place to get to because we're convinced in our culture that we're not wrong, that we're right, and we should just keep going, and, and everybody else should be the ones who repent. Well, there's a guy named Martin Luther, famous guy, uh, celebrated the 500 years of the Protestant Reformation last fall. Martin Luther was one of the guys who kind of launched that movement, and in October of 1517, he tacked what we call the 95 Theses uh, to the door of the All Saints Church. Um, at the core of the 95 Theses, he was challenging the practice of indulgences in the church. And if you don't know what the practice of indulgences was, the, the cliff note version of it is the practice of the church um, to have people either do time in serving, doing, doing works to get rid of sin, or to uh, pay for the removal of, of sin. So you, uh, he, he didn't read scriptures in that. He read... Um, you know, the opening sermon that Jesus preached. It's in the Gospel of Mark. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus' very first sermon was repent and believe the good news. Repent was the first word of the first sermon that Jesus ever spoke. He picked up on what the prophets had been saying for hundreds of years. The Messiah, Jesus, God himself, comes back to broken humanity, and the first thing that he asks us to do, commands us to do, is repent. And so Martin Luther is reading that, and, and the practice of the church at the time wasn't measuring up to what he was reading in the pages of Scripture, and so he, he challenged 
the church. He says, you, you can't work for, you can't pay for forgiveness. It's, it's there and, and open. We need to repent. We need to turn, turn our ways. There can't be any reconciliation in our lives unless we face the wrong things that we've done and admit it and turn from it. So if there's two parties who are at odds with one another, there's two people or two groups or whatever it is that are fractured, that there's a division, there's a wall that's been built up in them, both parties need to come to a place and find the spots where they need to own their behavior and their thinking and come to a point of repentance. Because if there's, if there's no admission, if there's no turning from thoughts, then there will never be reconciliation. Joseph, he, he put his brothers through those tests. I think one, because I th one, he was wrestling himself with do I really, can I forgive them? Have I forgiven them? Am I ready to truly put all that behind me and not count that against them any longer? But I think he was also trying to understand and hear from them, have they too had a change of heart? Are they also willing to move beyond that? Or are they still prisoner to that? Or do they, do they still harbor those kinds of feelings against me? And are they enacting those same kinds of feelings for my younger brother who's probably now dad's favorite? And he saw in Judah's response a changed heart, a changed man, one who once was ready to just leave somebody for dead, sold off into slavery. He would not do that to younger brother Benjamin. He was willing to sacrifice his own life in place of the penalty that Benjamin was facing. So you need to see the bigger picture. You need to come to a point of repentance. And the third thing that we need, the third step, if you will, in, in this story, in the process of reconciliation, the third step is forgiveness. Forgiveness is giving up, holding on to the hurt and the wrong things that people have done to you over time. Uh, forgiveness isn't free. Forgiveness is really costly. I mean, God offers us forgiveness, and it doesn't cost us anything but repenting, <laughs> admitting, turning, changing, and we can step into that forgiveness. But there really, there really can't be reconciliation, one, without repentance. There can't be reconciliation without forgiveness, a willingness to move beyond. Look at Joseph's story. The, the, the situation is now set in Joseph's favor. I mean, cliche, the, the tables have now turned. Joseph is in the position of power. He's in the position of privilege. He has all of the control in this moment. His brothers have none. His brothers desperately need him for grain, which is a way of saying they need him to survive. Joseph, from a physical life perspective, they don't, he doesn't need his brothers at all. They need him. He doesn't need them. The situation is now in, in his favor, and he has some options of what he could do here. He could, they don't know who he is. He could exact his revenge in total anonymity. They would never know. He could take it out on them, make them pay for what they did. He could reveal himself, you know, get that shocking moment, and then punish them. <clears throat> he could let them all leave, not knowing who he was. He could let them all leave. He could just send them away. Say, you know what? I forgive you for the crimes that 
appears that you have committed against us, just take all your people, take all your stuff, and get out of here. Go back to your own homeland. I'm not going to help you. There's several options that Joseph <laughs> might have had running through his head at, at this particular moment, and he doesn't choose any of them. He could crush them, but he does not. He chooses to embrace them, to weep over them, to forgive them, and to provide for their families, to move, physically move them from the famine, the severe famine drought area into Egypt where there is plenty of food at the particular time. At some point along the way in Joseph's journey, he, he chose to forgive them. And like we said, things look totally different on the other side of that moment of grace. All the years of the toil and the trouble have come to this particular moment where the grace and the love that he has experienced in the presence of God over the years, he is now able to, to flip and to turn and to extend to his own family members. So Joseph offers them life. He offers them new beginning. He, he gives us... <clears throat> I don't often like to take a single character out of the Old Testament and say that this is, a, this is like an image of Jesus, but there are ways that Joseph acts that point us to Christ. What Joseph did for his brothers is similar to what Christ offers to us. We can read the story and we can see an example of one whose own heart was changed and is now willing to act in uh, ways of grace instead of ways of revenge. <clears throat> we can see him offer this forgiveness and restoration to his brothers, this new life, and we can look to what Jesus came to do and we can see that there are some similarities that, that Jesus offers us forgiveness that Jesus offers us the opportunity for new and transformed life. It's, you know, we see a picture that the forgiveness that we receive from God, we're obligated to extend that on to other people. In the Apostles' Creed, one of the great creeds of the Christian faith, one of the one of the confessions, one of the lines that we say in that is, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And in that confession, one, we're acknowledging that we're sinners that need forgiveness. It's acknowledgement that we believe that God forgives our sins when we ask and, and repent. Jesus, his purpose was to save sinners. When a few minutes when we close our service around the Lord's table, we'll be reminded of the words of Christ where he says, this is my body, which was broken for you. When we take the cup, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. When we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, we're saying, yeah, we're sinners, but God forgives us. Jesus walked around the earth practicing what I call preemptive forgiveness. He would, he's just walking around and he would forgive people. I mean, remember the story in Mark? There's four guys and they had a friend who was lame and They'd load him up on a stretcher because they hear Jesus is in town and that he can heal people. And, and they, they cart their buddy and, and the house where Jesus is preaching is full and all the church people are in the way and they can't even get in the door to get their friend to the feet of Jesus to say, hey, will you, can you heal our friend? So these guys are ingenious. They, they notice that there's a staircase 
uh, around the side of the house, and it takes them up to the roof, and they get up to the roof, and they start peeling the roof back. And they dig all the way through the roof, and they make a hole big enough, and by this time, I'm sure there's been a commotion, and every, you know, the sermon has come to a screeching halt. And everybody's watching these guys, and finally there's this, uh, you know, the the ceiling breaks way and some light spills into the room and, and there's dirt and grass clippings falling down on people and, and, and then you see, you know, a few guys' faces peering down with these huge grins on their face and they get the hole big enough and they lower their buddy down to the feet of Jesus. He's lame, right? It's obvious what miracle they want. Heal our friend. And Jesus says, hey, brother, your sins are forgiven. What? Isn't it obvious, Jesus? We want you to heal this guy. But Jesus knew that the greatest need that he had wasn't that he was lame. The greatest need that that man had was that he had a fractured relationship with God and he needed his forgiveness. And he said, I forgive your sins. And then, and then he healed him and he got up and he walked. There's so many stories in the pages of the New Testament. The woman at the well who needed a, a healing interaction with Christ. The, the woman who was known as a sinner in Luke chapter 7, known as a sinner means hmm, she might have been a lady of the night, a prostitute. Shows up at a dinner party that Jesus is at, makes a scene. All the Pharisees are upset because Jesus is letting this go on and she's anointing his feet, crying on his feet, wiping his feet down with her hair. And Jesus, it says that he knows what they're thinking. It's kind of obvious, you know, when they're, you know, those darting glares that Christians sometimes are famous for. Like, oh, Jesus knew he was, they were judging him and they were judging her. He forgives her. Just don't leave her. Leave her alone. She's doing something really important. The other woman who, you know, Jesus is speaking and a, a bunch of guys, they, they bring this woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. And they ask Jesus, what are you going to do about this? He says, well, whoever's, you know, Sin-free, you cast the first stone, and they all went away. He forgave for sins. He said, go and sin no more. Jesus walked around forgiving sins, and his disciples are watching all of this, and they're picking up on this notion that if we are the recipients of God's grace and forgiveness, then that obligates us to extend forgiveness to other people. And Peter gets it in his mind like it's blowing his mind, and he doesn't understand what this looks like. And so in Matthew chapter 18, we get this, this little start of a story, this interaction between Peter and Jesus, and then Jesus tells this parable. And, and Peter's question that launches this episode is, how many times am I supposed to forgive somebody for the same thing? Seven? Now, rabbis taught that you were supposed to forgive somebody three times for the same thing, and after that, you know, it, you're on your own. And so Peter's thinking, hey, I'm sounding ultra-spiritual and righteous here. How many times am I supposed to forgive Jesus? Seven? I mean, I'm doubling that, and I'm adding one. And Jesus says... Some translations say 77, some say 70 times 7, 490 times. Now, Jesus isn't saying keep a ledger, and when they get to 491, you're off the hook. What he's saying is it's, such a, it's unlimited forgiveness. You just keep forgiving. Forgive and forgive. Forgive and forgive. And he tells this story uh, about this uh, servant of a king who owed the king, somehow he owed the king 10,000. And the king's like, you can't pay, so you're going to jail. And the guy just begs, he drops to his knees and he begs and he pleads. And the, the king 
God has mercy, compassion in his heart, and he forgives him. And he says, you know what? I'm going to wipe the slate clean. Now, that was unheard of. To have a king say that to somebody who owed him that much money, to wipe the slate clean. Okay, you don't owe me anything anymore. He didn't say, okay, I will give you extra time to pay the full amount. What he said was, you have no more debt. It doesn't just end there. The king says, and you are no longer a slave. That was also unheard of at the time. That guy left the king's presence with that forgiveness, with that compassion, with that grace, and that mercy just poured out over him. His life is totally different now. He, he went in a slave who owed a lot, and he left a free person. And immediately he comes upon somebody who owes him just a little bit, like enough to buy a Big Mac. And he demands payment for it. And the guy says, I can't pay. And Matthew writes it. Jesus tells it in a way that the words that the guy who owes him a Big Mac are the identical words that he himself had used before the king. I can't pay it. Please forgive me. And this guy who just had been freed threw this other guy in jail until he could pay up. And the word got back to the king, and it didn't end so well for this guy. How dare you? The, the moral of the story, the parable that Jesus is telling, is that the forgiveness that we receive from God is to be extended out into our relationships with the people around us, the people who have hurt us, people who have wronged us. We can't receive the forgiveness of God without also forgiving people who have hurt us. Now, that's hard. That's difficult. Sometimes it takes a while to get to that place, but that's where Jesus is calling us to go. We have to have this picture for reconciliation. You have to have an understanding of the big picture what is God trying to do? God is trying to preserve and extend life and offer salvation. God is wanting to be reconciled to humanity. God also wants us to be reconciled to one another. You have to have the uh, ability, the step two is to, to repent, to change your heart, to own your stuff. The third step is to come to this place of forgiveness. So when forgiveness is extended and received, it opens, it unlocks this door to reconciliation. Now, Joseph has this beautiful moment with his brothers, weeping and hugging and kissing and kind of reads a little bit sappy. But imagine the moment. It's two decades in the making. Joseph has a better grasp of what's going on than the brothers do. For the brothers, it's a moment of fear, of shock. They're startled. They don't know what's happening. They don't know what this would mean. They've just been forgiven for something that they maybe had. They, they knew it, it was there, but, you know, it's been, wow, a long time. Joseph's willing to move beyond, but it will take till the end of the Genesis narrative, a couple weeks when we get there, for us to get a true picture of what this reconciliation looks like. Joseph still has the position of power, and so his brothers are still a little bit leery and afraid, like, does he really mean what he's saying, or can, can we trust him? And it won't be until the end, after Jacob passes away, after dad passes away, that they come back and, and they put words in Jacob's mouth and they say, hey, dad said that you have to forgive us. 
And Joseph reminds them, I've already done that. God takes the, initi- uh, the initiative to reconcile with humanity. And I'll close, I want to read you some words of Paul. He writes in 2 Corinthians 5, <clears throat> Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. And all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It starts there. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It starts with being reconciled to God, but it doesn't end there. Just like your salvation doesn't end with you, it's to be extended on to the next person. It's something that we receive so that we can pass it along. We are now the ambassadors of reconciliation. And we see that in the story of Joseph. And our challenge is that we step into that, that we see the big picture. We come to the moments where we need to repent, and we do so. And we receive the forgiveness of God and then we extend it out to other people. People of God said, Amen.